Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode includes descriptions of extreme violence, domestic violence, and some highly sexual content. Listener discretion is advised. Mesa, Arizona is a large suburb of Phoenix, and it's actually the largest suburb in the United States by population. As of 2019, Mesa is home to over 500,000 people. In the southeast corner of Mesa lies a community of Mountain Ranch. Mountain Ranch is a pre-planned community built in 2004 with about 1,000 homes. Most of the homes are two stories, painted brown, and have desert landscaping that matches the surrounding Arizona desert. On March 19, 2004, 26-year-old Travis Alexander bought a brand new 3,700-square-foot house at 11436 East Queensboro Drive in the Mountain Ranch community for $215,000. Travis was a successful, young, motivational speaker and salesman for the multi-level marketing company Prepaid Legal Services, or PPL. Travis had several roommates move in with him to kind of help out with the house and fill the rooms. It was a large house. Travis was uh, an unmarried young man, and so he had some of his friends move in and some people he didn't know as well move in. Travis had a pretty troubled upbringing and childhood, and he had joined the Mormon faith in his teen years. Most of his friends and roommates were also members of the church, and they adhered to its strict guidelines for relationships, including no sex before marriage. Through his work, Travis traveled across the country speaking at PPL conventions. In 2006, Travis attended one such convention in Las Vegas, Nevada. There, he met fellow PPL rep Jody Arias. Jody was a bleach blonde 26-year-old from Salinas, California, but she was living in Southern California, and she was smitten with Travis. Travis had also recently lost a, a good amount of weight, and so he was starting to gain his confidence. And so when he met Jody, he was attracted to her, and the fact that she also returned his affection and his attentions really made him even more interested in her. By November of 2006, just over two months after meeting Travis, Jody converted to Mormonism for Travis. She had previously been in several serious relationships, but she hadn't been married and she desperately wanted to get married and start a family and kind of have that that kind of typical American family with the house and the kids. And in Travis, she saw someone who had values due to a strong Mormon faith. He was already fairly successful and he also wanted to have children in the future. So she kind of thought this could be the one for me. And she was basically doing everything she could to make herself as attractive to Travis as possible. 
She also knew that as a Mormon, Travis would only get married to another Mormon. And so by converting to Mormonism, she was therefore making herself an eligible bachelorette for him. She was actually baptized into the Mormon faith by Travis himself at a special ceremony in Southern California. So by then, both of them were Mormon, but the two struggled to remain chaste, and they often broke the Mormon laws about having oral, anal, and vaginal sex. Initially, it kind of seems like Travis may have said that oral and anal sex were okay, and vaginal sex was the only one that was kind of off the table uh, for the Mormon faith, but ultimately, they had a lot of sex during their relationship of all kinds. Travis and Jody officially began dating the following February, and soon thereafter, Jody relocated to Mesa, Arizona to be closer to Travis. Travis's friends were concerned about the relationship, and for the most part, they didn't really like Jody. They were concerned because she was controlling and jealous and just overall didn't seem like a good influence on Travis. She wasn't the wholesome Mormon woman that um, a lot of them knew and wanted for Travis. She was kind of seen as a bit of a vixen and his friends just really ended up not liking her. The couple also fought a lot and there was a lot of really unhealthy behavior that even his friends saw. And so they were just really concerned about the relationship. They didn't like it and they didn't think that Travis should continue the relationship. By April of 2008, their relationship took a turn for the worse and they broke up. This was right after Jody ended up moving to Mesa. So at this point, she's living in Mesa. She had moved there for Travis. Uh, she doesn't have a lot of money. She often worked as like a bartender or a waitress, um, but she didn't really have a job. And so Travis started to pay her to clean his house. So in that way, Jody still had a connection to Travis. Travis did kind of attempt to move on, but Jody continued her possessive behavior, even going so far as to slash his tires two nights in a row when she found out that he had gone out with another woman. Eventually, Jody's money ran out completely, and she had to move away from Mesa. She moved back into her grandparents' home in Wairika, California. This is a really small town. It's about 20 miles south of the Oregon-California border. Travis finally felt like he could move on with his life and not really have to worry about his ex-girlfriend anymore. Like a bad addiction, though, Travis and Jody continued to talk on the phone, and they talked about even meeting up again to have sex. But Travis did attempt to move on from the relationship. Jody would continue, though, to log into his Facebook account, his email account, and his voicemail, basically to keep track of what he was doing and who he was talking to. And this really enraged Travis. He told her to stop this behavior multiple times, but it just continued. He even was on his Facebook account one time and was actually bumped out of the account, which only happens when someone else logs in from a different device. And he confronted her right away and said, hey, did you just log into my account? She ultimately admitted to it. And again, he was really adamant about her not doing that um, and was really angered by this. But like I said, the two continued to talk and they did continue to have explicit conversations over the phone. 
at one point, Jody ended up recording one of these very explicit conversations. It's not completely clear whether or not Travis knew that this was being recorded. You know, generally, this is not something that he would ever want to get out if, you know, the bishop at his church somehow got their hands on a sexual phone call that Travis was on, it could get him completely banned from the church, excommunicated. And so this was something that it seems like maybe he didn't know that he was being recorded. In this conversation, Travis talks about tying Jody to a tree and basically having anal sex with her. There's a lot more that's in this recording. It's very, very sexually explicit. It even is so explicit that uh, you hear the two orgasm over the phone. Like I said, it's unclear whether or not Travis was aware of this recording, but it was kind of determined that Jody made this recording to have a little bit of blackmail over Travis. So if she had this recording, she had some power over him. You know, like I said, if the bishop at Travis's church got a hold of this recording or was made aware of it, then he could be excommunicated. So by Jody having it, she regained some power over Travis. It's likely at that point when she told Travis that she had this recording, that he became more enraged than ever and basically tried to cut all ties with Jody. Travis's friends recall conversations with him where he was more angry at Jody than ever before. He wouldn't say specifically what had happened or why he was so angered by, you know, this most recent occurrence. Um, but we know that she had been logging into his Facebook and email for years to that point. So it doesn't seem like that would be something that had angered him so much. It seems like maybe this voice recording was something that really, really pushed him over the edge and made it so that he never wanted to speak to her again. During this time, Travis was continuing to date other wholesome Mormon women, and he again vowed not to have sex until he was married. Travis was set to go on a trip to Cancun, Mexico on June 15th, 2008. He had won this trip by achieving some sales goals through PPL. So it was like an all expenses paid trip to Mexico and he got a plus one. Initially, it was believed that Jody was set to accompany him on the trip. But by April, around the same time Jody moved to Wairika, Travis changed the plan and let his work know that another woman would be accompanying him on the trip instead of Jody. Jody was planning on attending a PPL conference in Utah on June 5th, about 10 days before the Cancun trip. And she decided to take a road trip before the conference. On the morning of Monday, June 2nd, Jody went to Redding, California, and rented a car. She drove south to Salinas, and she stayed the night in Monterey with her ex-boyfriend. She borrowed two empty gas cans from him and filled them up nearby their home in Salinas. She then drove from Monterey to Pasadena, and what happens from there initially became some matter of debate. Jody Arias initially claimed that she drove straight to Ogden, Utah, but she got lost several times, and she was even stranded once and slept in her car on the side of the road. But as time went on, the vicious truth of what actually happened started to come out. 
In reality, after leaving Pasadena, Jody continued east to Mesa, Arizona, using the gas from the gas cans to fill up her tank so that she wouldn't be seen at any gas station security footage. She arrived at Travis Alexander's house early in the morning of June 4th. What happened after she arrived at the house has been pieced together both from forensic evidence found inside of Travis Alexander's house and photos from a digital camera that was discovered in the washing machine at Travis's house. Although the digital camera had been through a wash cycle in the washing machine, the photos were still able to be recovered. Several photos on the camera appeared to show Travis in the shower on June 4th. The final photo, which seemed to have been taken by mistake, possibly when the camera was dropped to the floor, appeared to show someone's naked shoulder, likely Travis's, bleeding on the bathroom floor. By June 5th, Jody Arias arrived in Salt Lake City, and she met up with a coworker and friend, Ryan Burns. The pair attended the PPL conference and meetings together, and Burns would later testify that Jody had cuts on her hands and her bleach blonde hair had been dyed a dark brown. By June 6th, Jody left Utah and she returned the rental car in Redding, California. The rental agency noted that there were red stains on the seats, but they thought that they were just Kool-Aid stains. They had no reason to believe they were anything else, and so they just cleaned the car thoroughly and prepared it to be rented again. On her drive from Utah to California, Jody called Travis several times and left voicemail messages in an effort to appear ignorant to the fact that he was already dead. By June 9th, Travis had missed several work calls and his friends became increasingly concerned after not being able to reach him for several days, which was unlike Travis. A group of his friends went to his house in Mesa and they talked to his roommates who had just assumed that Travis left for his Cancun trip early. The friends went to check on Travis's room where they made a horrifying discovery. There was a massive amount of blood in the master suite and the adjoining bathroom. They found Travis's naked and decomposing body crumpled on the floor of the standing shower. His face and head had turned to a sickly shade of blue-black, and he had obviously been dead for several days. They immediately called 911, and when they were asked if they knew of anyone who would want to hurt Travis, they mentioned Jody. Travis had allegedly expressed concerns over Jody's behavior, claiming that she was upset about the breakup and had been stalking him even more than just hacking into his Facebook account. On July 15th, 2008, Jody Arias was arrested in Wairika and charged with first-degree murder in the death of Travis Alexander. An autopsy revealed that Travis likely died from 27 to 29 stab wounds, one of which pierced a major artery and a large slice along his throat, which had severed his corroded artery. He had also received a single gunshot wound to the back of the head. The medical examiner determined that this shot was likely overkill and that Travis was likely dead by the time of the gunshot. This is up for debate a little bit because of the already decomposed state of the brain by the time the medical examiner was able to look at it. She was unable to say conclusively that this was the order that things happened in, and it was possible that the gunshot had happened first, although it was much more likely that he was stabbed, his throat was slit, and then he received the gunshot wound. His body had been inside the home while his roommates lived there for several days. 
Due to the location of the master bathroom in relation to the rest of the house, the smell of Travis's decomposing body was not really strong enough to reach the area of the house where the roommates lived, so they were completely unaware. Jody pleaded not guilty to the murder, and her trial began four and a half years later, on January 11th of 2013. Part of the reason for this delay in the trial was an issue finding a non-tainted jury pool. The case had caused a media frenzy, and finding jurors in the Phoenix area who had not heard of the case and already made an opinion was pretty difficult. It also took ample time to go through over 8,000 messages between Jody and Travis throughout their relationship. During the time before the trial, Jody also changed her story twice. Like I stated previously, she initially claimed that she wasn't in Mesa at the time of the murder and, and that she had driven directly to Utah, stopping once to sleep in her car on the side of the road. But as time went on, she changed her story, saying that she was there at the house when Travis was killed, but she had not committed the crime herself. She said that there were two masked intruders who entered the house and held both her and Travis at gunpoint before killing Travis and allowing her to leave. By the time of the trial, Jody had changed her story again. At trial, Jody claimed that Travis had been emotionally and physically abusive towards her throughout their relationship. At one point, she claimed that he broke her finger on her right hand, showing the jury her crooked finger that had not healed straight. She also claimed that she had caught Travis masturbating to a photo of a young boy in underwear, although an extensive search of Travis's computer and internet history didn't discover any porn or anything that would lead investigators to believe that Travis was a pedophile. Jody claimed that the abuse culminated on the night of June 4th when Travis became outraged after Jody dropped his new digital camera that she had been using to take photos of him in the shower. She claimed that he attacked her, causing her to fight for her life against him. She ran into the walk-in closet and she grabbed Travis's gun from the top shelf, a gun that no one else knew that Travis had and that no case or holster was ever found for. She said he then grabbed her and tackled her in the bathroom, at which point she shot Travis in the head, but the attack didn't end there. After the gunshot, she claimed that Travis just became more enraged, at which point she found a knife that was in the bathroom and began to stab him in self-defense. Crime scene photos show an enormous amount of blood in the bathroom, and defensive wounds on Travis's hands showed that he did try to stop his attacker and he held up his hands against her while he was being stabbed. It was unclear why she would also then have to slit his throat after shooting him and stabbing him 24 to 27 times, but that was her story. Travis's friends and family were outraged by the personal attacks on Travis when he wasn't there to defend himself. They had known him to be funny and kind and generous, but never violent or abusive and definitely not a pedophile. The prosecution saw the events on June 4th differently than Jody, and they argued that Jody was upset that she was no longer the only woman in Travis's life and that her jealousy drove her to kill Travis. They claimed that she surprised Travis by attacking him when he was at his most vulnerable, naked in the shower. Like I said, defensive wounds on Travis's hands proved that he had attempted to stop the attack. 
They claimed that she then used the gun that she had taken from her grandparents' home in Ryrica to shoot Travis in the head. She then put the digital camera in the washing machine, hoping that it would destroy the photos she had taken of him in the shower and destroying the evidence that she was in the house at all the day that he was killed. After five months of trial, a jury found Jody Arias guilty of first-degree murder on May 7, 2013. Jody's first sentencing trial ended up in a hung jury, with 8 out of 12 jurors favoring the death penalty over life in prison without parole. Her second sentencing trial also ended similarly, this time with 11 out of 12 jurors favoring the death penalty. Ultimately, the judge sentenced Jody to life in prison without the possibility of parole. By the end of the trial, Jody's defense costs totaled around $3 million, and she was using public defenders, so this is $3 million of taxpayer money. Jody Arias remains incarcerated at the Arizona State Prison Complex in Perryville, about 50 miles from where she brutally took the life of Travis Alexander. The home on Queensboro Avenue has not been sold since the murder took place and likely remains in the Alexander family. Thank you for listening to this episode of Morbid Tourism about Travis Alexander's house. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, you are not alone and help is available. Please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. If you enjoy learning about morbid locations, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a rating or review to let us know what you think. New episodes are released weekly. Between episodes, you can visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia and Exposed the Secret Life of Jody Arias by Jane Villas Mitchell. 